0: Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a climate corruption journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic, ecological and political crises that we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. This week, I spoke with Phoebe Bernard. Phoebe is a climate scientist who has worked across very many sectors of the climate problem, from biology to women's leadership in the global south. She's also the co founder of the Stable Planet Alliance, a group that is investigating uh, overpopulation and hyperconsumption. They're currently working on a paper that will be submitted to the United Nations. Uh, They're looking at developing top-down policy plans and also bottom-up grassroots organization. Now, it struck me just before jumping on the call with Phoebe that actually I hadn't talked about population on the show yet. And that seems unfathomable. Planet Critical has been running in its current form for about nine months. Uh, So how is it that the population question has not yet come up? Well, it's a very divisive question. It's a very emotional question. It's a very historical question question with roots in eugenics and racism and these things that we absolutely cannot ignore. And yet Phoebe says, we have to take those concerns very seriously, but we also have to take the problem of overpopulation very, very seriously. This is a conversation that goes back and forth a lot on the population question. It was really, really fascinating to get into the morality of it, the data of it, the politics of it. And we come up with different ways of framing this problem. And I think the framing that I enjoyed the most is the population question is also a question of intergenerational rights. What planet are we leaving for future unborn children? What do they deserve? Can reducing our own birth rates give them a better future that they do deserve? I hope you all enjoy this episode. There's a lot of meat in it and it certainly ponders a lot of questions. If you do enjoy it, please share it far and wide. If you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com or on Patreon. And a huge thank you to the Planet Critical community who keep this project going. Phoebe, it's such a pleasure to have you on Planet Critical. Thank you for joining me on the show. Such a pleasure.
1: You've had amazing guests. Uh, I pledge to be even in, in regarded as remotely in that camp.
0: <laughs> thank you. I um, feel so blessed with the kind of people that I get to interview and speak with and learn from. And I'm so glad to sort of offer this value as well to, to listeners who are in the process of learning about the climate crisis. Yeah. And your name came up very, very early on. It's just taken us a, a while to find a time to do this. So certainly the other guests think you're in this camp?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I'm glad we're finally pulling it together at last. It has been a while. Me too.
0: Let's do a whistle-stop tour of your career and then get into the Stable Planet Alliance. Um, the the short version is um,
1: started out as an evolutionary biologist, ecologist, working on behavior of birds and energetics and things like that. But my mind was always more broadly focused. I love, I love the detailed field science, um, but I was always very idealistic. Even at the age of sixty-one now, <laughs> horrifically idealistic. So I went into conservation biology, after I got back from a PhD at Uppsala University on sexual selection and birds' fancy plumages. (laughs) Then, you know, I guess migrated into global change ecology, vulnerability to climate change and other land use changes, other big transformative issues. And finally into kind of environmental futures and societal futures, leading to... Uh, point at which I felt I needed to go right for the jugular of the issues that are driving all of our planetary and societal crises and what are those issues (laughs) I (laughs) I felt that you know with everything I'd been doing throughout my whole life breaking my back and my whole team's back working really long hours a day and achieving some good things but uh, that that they were so ephemeral in fleeting Mm -hmm. successes unless we could go right to the problem of human impact on the planet. Mm -hmm. And looking at it, I realized that that's um, a couple of really basic biological things are our numbers and our uh, propensity to want to have it all, to consume a lot, so it's population and consumption. But those are also kind of cross-cut. With um the lens of inequality and corruption and um, the the worst parts of our human behavior, so I decided eventually, after working on biodiversity and climate change in government, with one foot in academia for much of my career in Africa, that I would come back to the USA uh, after thirty eight years away and get stuck into humans and our bottom line issues of our impact on the planet. Crazy thing, you know, really, really unwise probably, but I felt, you know, at this time in my life, I need to do it. And I'm also, you know, old enough and struppy enough that I can wade into the center of a debate and not feel timid about
0: it. Mm, Good for you. How interesting, how important that is, I suppose, given the kind of Political actors and deniers, and all the skeptics that we're up against in terms of trying to dismantle the power vacuum and do something.
1: Yeah, and it's ironic because I grew up as a very, um, I don't know, easily wounded uh, child who found it hard to take constructive criticism, never mind destructive criticism. So over the years, I've had to grow a thicker skin. Mm.
0: But,
1: you know, I didn't start out that way. <laughs>
0: So did you found the Stable Planet Alliance then upon your return to the USA to deal with these issues of overpopulation and hyperconsumption? I co-founded Stable
1: Planet Alliance uh, with two men who uh, wanted to make things happen but recognized that they you know couldn't themselves do it. Uh, those were Chris Tucker the chairman of the American Geographical Society, who had written a book called Planet of Three Billion, Um, really interesting geographer, uh, political scientist, spatial data geek, and a man called Peter Fikowski, who is a a MIT-trained physicist and a serial entrepreneur uh, from Silicon Valley, who is deeply committed to the future of humankind and to be honest uh, peter initially wanted me to set up a, a an organization just another organization working on population and i said no um not going to do it population My- needs to be spoken about in the same breath as hyperconsumption or it won't get anywhere and you know also there are many good existing population organizations out there and in the current climate, especially in the USA, uh, sometimes they're struggling, but they've without exception understood the need to embrace hyperconsumption. So I said to Peter and also to Chris, I'm not going to start a population organization, but what I will do, if you know this <laughs> if if um, I can persuade you of this, is start a global coalition of like-minded groups working on the economy. Hyperconsumption, population, women's leadership, women's voices, and bring these issues of population and hyperconsumption together and let all the people who have not been speaking up about the issue, i.e., women around the world, and especially women of the global south, have their voice. So, Stable Planet Alliance was born um, officially only about eight months ago. Right. Uh, and uh, as a global coalition. And Girl Planet Earth, which is a project now of Stable Planet Alliance, was born as a global pla- uh, platform for women around the world to speak up on those issues in their own voices and their own words.
0: Why the focus on women? Why is that important when thinking about a stable planets? Two things I want to say about that.
1: One, women have been unheard mostly. Uh, particularly women that are not of privilege but are coming from around the world from different cultures, different faith communities, different professions, and have strong opinions about what they want to do with their lives and how they want to be empowered to, to uh, how they are taking power to live their lives as they wish um, and their observations about the state of our planet. And uh, that we need to lead off with that. Women's leadership has always been really important to me, but especially in the last 10 years, and particularly in the last six years, since I was fortunate enough to be asked to go on a women in STEM leadership course to Antarctica um, with the Homeward Bound Project. But the second thing is, I guess, although we're leading off with women's voices, it's really clear, I think, to most of us that men, frankly, in the economic machine that we all are constrained by currently, men have been a significant part of the problem, but they also need to be a big part of the solution. So getting men talking. About what's important in life, what their measures of success are, how they identify, what status or wealth means to them. You know, in many parts of the world, wealth is still defined by the number of wives and children you have. So just getting men talking is really important too. And as Chris Tucker said to me when we first started talking after our uh, paper, World Scientist's Warning of a Climate Emergency. Um, And he said, wow, you guys mentioned the P word population. Scientists don't often do that. You know, thank you. Here's my book. Um, uh, He he said to me at that stage, you know, a big part of the issue is just getting people talking. And I thought, well, I've been doing that most of my career. I can do that. Let me get stuck into it because my co-authors of that paper, you know, all amazing men in their own right, but all white men in academia, none of whom had worked in the developing world, they weren't going to deal with these issues. So let me step up to the plate and now's my time.
0: Mm. I think it's a very important thing to always remember about the patriarchy is that it hurts men as much as it hurts women. Mm. Uh, because the problem is you know, class and inequality and all of these permutations. Yeah. Um. However, it does seem... I really want to get into this population and consumption thing because I was thinking about this actually before we jumped on the call. We have not had the P word on Planet Critical in the year whatever that it's been running. I have not discussed population with anybody. Yeah. Um, and it seems that there is a distinct fear in the scientific community to engage with this topic because of you know the very recent history of eugenics in Western colonial history... Um, and it also seems to me that, you know, the difference is that a uh, population in cannot be part of the problem in and of itself because it is because of the difference in consumption levels in different populations around the world, depending on what resources and energy and wealth that we have access to. Yeah, yeah. precisely. And
1: And there's been an absolutely horrific history, but that doesn't give us a free pass to ignore it and hope that the problem will go away. And instead of engaging honestly and, you know, bravely on the issue, people have been content to just kind of turn on each other and um and finger point and bicker. And we don't have time for that. You know as well as I do. Rome is burning and we've got to just figure it out in In Namibia and also in South Africa, when I was working there for years on climate change and biodiversity, I ran big national teams to you know start and get going strategic planning on those two issues in in those countries. And uh, I got known as the you know the the woman who would metaphorically lock people in a room with a box a set of boxes of pizzas and say, you've got to sort this out, come up with a solution, come up with a matrix of, you know, what you're going to do by when, who's going to lead it. And, you know, here are the pizzas, I'll let you out when you've solved it. And I guess I'm sort of taking that approach here. We don't have the luxury of saying, first we'll treat hyper consumption and then we'll treat population or, um, you know, it's okay to bicker and turn on each other. Even this past week, I've had a bunch of colleagues in conservation biology uh, saying they weren't going to read a paper by some of my colleagues, scientists warning on population, by really respected sociologists, ecologists, and, um, you know, Eileen Christ, Paul Ehrlich, Bill Ripple, Bill Rees, And uh, they they weren't even going to read it because it was about the P word. Really, people? Are are we going to go down with a bang and a whimper, uh, both of them at once, in civilization? Because we are tiptoeing around issues that we've got to figure out. And the fact that some people in the past, and frankly, sadly, even now, can be racist in their approach, or eugenicist in their approach, does not allow us to avoid it. So we've got to come together in a rights-based human rights and planetary justice framework and let women speak up about this issue first and figure out a way to voluntarily and ethically and gradually, but soon, bend that curve, both on population and hyperconsumption. At the same time, it takes a big mind shift, um, to make this happen and big changes to our economy.
0: I want to keep picking this scab though, (laughs) metaphorically, um, (laughs) because Um. when discussing population, does it not have to be a localized discussion because of this consumption problem and because of the resource inequality and the wealth inequality and the energy inequality, Mm um, In Europe, for example, uh, you know, birth rates are declining um, and equally the uh, average consumption per capita is outrageous unless you're France because you did the right thing, you know, a couple of decades ago and went nuclear. Um, So the population of the UK versus the population of Namibia and the growth or decline of birth rates, it's going to have a different effect on the planet, surely. Um, And so are these conversations and these papers that are being written using the P word about population, are they focusing on these localized issues or is it talking about the sort of generalized uh, global issue of population? And is that fair? I mean, surely the people who are concerned about bringing population into the debate have good reason for their concerns.
1: It depends who's writing it. Some people are really mindful, thoughtful, well-grounded in reality of the issues, and they're talking about it appropriately. And I think that the paper that just came out, led by Eileen Christ, um, is a good example of that. Not everybody is talking that way. But I think we've all got to get real about the state of the world. It's no longer a simple uh, situation as it was even 20 years ago when I was still a, a negotiator at the UN convention on biological diversity and the global south and the global north would bicker about who was at fault with the state of the planet you know it's the affluent north no it's the overproducing overpopulating south thing it, it, it was never honestly that simple but it's especially not that simple now affluence becomes a poison wherever it is in the world and the usa and a few other countries Uh, Kuwait, Luxembourg, (laughs) um, Canada, Australia are, are all in much the same camp. But affluence has popped up, inequality, obscene inequality has popped up everywhere in the world. And people in Nigeria, for example, and Lagos are just as likely as affluent people anywhere to want to fly to London and do their shopping or have a weekend holiday in Budapest. And it's gotten out of control. So we have to talk more in a nuanced way about where the problem is, what the problem is, and not just have knee-jerk, finger-pointing insults about the other. We've got to get around a table using the kind of civil discourse methods that we have in conflict resolution. And figure out how to go forward, because we all bear collective responsibility for the state of the planet, not necessarily individually, because big chunks of humanity cannot in any way be said to have personal responsibility for the planet. But both systemic change and individual change need to you know, really accelerate, and we're not going to do that if we continue to sit and argue about what's the problem or who should be allowed to talk about it. And (laughs) I've gotten really impatient with people that should know better at this late 11th hour, almost 12th hour for humanity.
0: Let's go through some of the data then on population. How many people can the biosphere support? I'm...
1: a person who's very particular about that issue i don't believe in giving a number it's probably between the ranges that are often talked about now chris tuckers planet of 3 billion on the on the high side and uh, perhaps the recent figure that was uh, coming out from that uh, Stonehenge type of structure that was vandalized in the U.S. state of Georgia recently, where someone had uh, carved out uh, an inscription about a population of half a billion on the Earth. Now, it's going to take a long time to get back there. And most people aren't even willing to talk about doing more than stabilizing the planet. In fact, most people just accept almost exponential growth as a continuing reality and to talk about anything else is is, is somehow rights um, in, insulting in a rights context. But we're not thinking about intergenerational rights when we have these discussions. No. Um, and, and maybe I'll get onto that in a second. Um, but my personal view is that we've got to get people walking in the right direction, without getting hung up on a numeric goal. Because again, it's another thing for people to bicker about. And personally, with 8 billion people, we've got to start the momentum going much more. I mean, so many countries with coercive pronatalist policies, like increasingly the US, China, Iran, Hungary, a lot of countries that the U.S. might think that it doesn't like to be associated with, Poland, increasing number of countries are moving in precisely the wrong direction. Um, But we need to get the mass of humanity accepting that planetary impact is likely to cause the collapse of civilization within the lifetimes of someone your age, possibly within my lifetime, And uh, we need to figure that out and de-grow both our economy and our numbers as fast as humanly possible. Some initial modeling suggests that we might be able to get back to a population of 3 billion and a total fertility rate of 1.5 children per woman um, sometime in the 22nd century without coercive methods without policy measures, without autocratic governments, just through the changes of approach and choice and inc- increased access to birth control.
0: Okay. Yeah, but I mean, that—that that is a change in policy. Increased access to birth control, also increased access to education. The higher educated a woman is, typically the less children uh, she not has.
1: Worse pregnancies, I suppose. I mean, right?
0: Yeah, because there is a there is a huge difference between four billion and three billion. I'm not a mathematician. I can't do that percentage, uh, but yeah. a lot. It's a te- it's actually a terrifying difference. Um, it is absolutely. Uh, yeah,
1: and and uh, Yale, you know the Yale 360. Program there, there's been a very good recent article I can't remember the authors just in the past week or two talking about simply um, uh, reducing the number of unwanted pregnancies will have a significant impact on climate and by extension on biodiversity loss on plastics pollution on all of our societal pressures and crises so. Mm. I guess, you know, as David Attenborough and other people have observed over the years, either we figure out a way to do this voluntarily and mindfully and within a rights based structure, or we let nature do it for us, or perhaps autocracies do it for us, and there will be misery and chaos all around. So the choice is ours. What
0: does a right based structure for reducing population look like though? I I'd like increased access to birth control. Sure. But that's still, yeah. you know, the autonomous choice of people Of you know, well, people can be on birth control for 10 years and then decide to have seven children. Um, so my, my two daughters were born on birth control, but
1: you know, yeah. um, I was very happy to have them. Uh, but absolutely. That's a significant issue. So we need to have uh, options for people to prevent unwanted pregnancies despite mm-hmm. birth control. We need to have the kind of governance and leadership systems that are much more heavily reflecting of women and women's wishes, because mm-hmm. women's wishes, with some notable exceptions in the U.S. and other countries, are quite distinct from the kinds of policies that coercive pronatalist countries have. Mm -hmm. And um, also, I think that we do need to make uh, really practical things like all hormonal-based contraceptives more freely available over-the-counter in countries around the world,
0: things Mm -hmm. like that.
1: Education and dialogue. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we've put some time into dialogue and Stable Planet Alliance and Girl Planet Earth because we know that just shifting people's mindsets And wading into conversations where people are engaged in fruitless bickering can help change how people think
0: about the problems and the solutions. What are some coercive policies that could be implemented in the coming decades if we don't all voluntarily stop having as many children?
1: Oh, you just have to look at the Southeastern USA to see some examples that, abortion becomes completely illegal, even in cases of rape or incest, even of children, Um, that uh, women are uh, prevented from traveling to other places to secure abortions, that um, there are tax incentives um, and disincentives. I think even in Britain, it's been discussed of uh, taxing child-free parents
0: and yes, insidious. so so these are coercive pro-natalist policies. But what would some uh, coercive uh, population reduction policies look like? Well, um, you know we have examples from China
1: and India that went horribly wrong in in so many ways. Um, mm-hmm. They were effective at their stated policy goal, but they were horrendous from a humanitarian and rights perspective. I fear that when people recognize that the capitalist pie does not grow, Mm -hmm. um, that the planet is a finite pie, and that with every uh, 80 million net new mouths to feed every year, which is what we are still talking about, that each person's share of the pie has to decrease to accommodate that. That really simple really fundamental point, seems to still be lost on most people. So when governments realize that and wars are breaking out over food and water, as is already happening in some countries then and between some countries, then I expect that we may have um, coercive anti-natalist policies put in place. And and neither one is desirable. People should be able to choose. People need to be able to understand that um, maybe it doesn't need to be culturally expected that their role in life is to reproduce, to marry, to have 2.1 children and two dogs and whatever, that they can choose alternative meaning and purpose and lifestyles that allow them to contribute to civilization and the planet in a more productive way. And many people are, of course, choosing those lifestyles, not just in Europe and North America, but all around the world. And there's a really refreshing amount of dialogue about it. But we don't want to go to the alternative. And if we don't hurry up with dialogue and voluntary measures, then we likely don't have a choice. And that's a scary thought. It
0: seems to me still that the you know the problem is market forces because you, you mentioned food for example food production is on the rise it has been on the rise for forever pretty much apart from like a one dip recently i think about five years ago mm-hmm. um there is so much in the world it, some people i speak to say there is actually more than enough to go around the problem is this kind of uh, you know, capitalist ideology that encourages and celebrates hoarding of resources rather than redistribution. Um, so I suppose my fear about the the population discussion, and I know that I have kept it on population rather than talking as well about this interplay between population and overconsumption, um, but is that if we don't fix and address the market forces that are ensuring um this destruction of the planet and this terrible inequality and hunger and all of these things that actually are solvable and within our power to change um then what we will see is perhaps sort of an increasing uh, inequality whereby i don't know people get child credits and the elite get to have 15 and you know they represent the consumption of like 15,000 people and yet you know the marginalized so you know your lgbtq community your people of color Uh, people in the global south will not be allowed to have children. And what's that going to do culturally diverse? I mean, you know, you can just see how it could all go wrong so fast.
1: Everything could go horribly wrong so fast. And that's one of the worst, most obscene, most insidious examples. So let me be really clear. We cannot solve this with the economy that we have. Mm. And when I used to be teaching this, 30 years ago, it was a controversial idea and some of my students would argue with me or if I gave a public talk, people would get upset and argue. Now, a lot of people, even if they're quiet about it, they know in their hearts of hearts that the global, um, hyper-consumptive, predatory, voracious capitalist economy has to go. We should have recognized this more than 40 or 50 years ago. But the fact was it was still working for a lot of people then. And it became the case that the rich were going growing visibly richer and the poor visibly poorer, but still the people who controlled the economy were benefiting. So Stable Planet Alliance has really embraced at the core of what we do a fundamental alternative to GDP, to growthism, to capitalism, and the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, the Center for the Advancement of the Steady State Economy, the Center for Sustainable Economy, and hopefully uh, Donut Economics Action Lab will all be working together in the same direction on this. But I think we, in in the scientists' warnings, into action. Framework that we published last year at COP26, with you know 15 scientists, economists, and government specialists, governance specialists from around the world, we identified this as one of the fundamental problems without which we cannot solve things. But look at us—we're right at the 11:59 moment here, and we're trying to achieve fundamental change in the economy, in our broken political systems, in our psychological mindsets our cultural traditions all at once Mm. it's almost an impossibly steep task but as i sometimes say the only real benefit of having eight million eight billion people on the planet is that we've got enormous talent gene pool to work on multiple problems all at once the the risks are high but we don't have a choice but to attempt it
0: (sighs) So I saw a tweet by Elon Musk, um, and I don't know how that happened because obviously I don't follow him and I don't like him. Uh, but he, uh, you know, he like had his nth child recently or, you know, at this had a whole bunch of children with two different women around about the same time last year or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was tweeting about the fact that the biggest crisis in his perspective is population, but the other way. That we're underpopulating the world, and that we all need to do our best to continue populating the planet with more and more people. Um, why do some people think that? What is their argument for that? Do you know?
1: They're in bubbles of privilege. It's hard to, it's hard to come up with any uh, alternative, you know, explanation for that. They're in terrible bubbles of privilege, and of course, he likes being provocative, mm. and. People who are somewhere on the spectrum sometimes have an easier time saying what they think needs to be said. Um, I understand there's been some uh, discussion uh, between Greta Thunberg uh, relating and maybe and Elon Musk, but certainly relating to Elon Musk. Okay, He, of course, you know, is easily accused of just wanting to build enormous numbers of passengers to go to Mars, but I I honestly (laughs) think it's that. I think that's just a kind of cheap shot. (laughs) Uh, Many people of privilege uh, have enormous blind spots and don't see them as offensive, deeply unethical, um, completely contrary to what they may be doing for good in another sphere, like trying to transform the global transportation fleet, like I would agree that Musk has done some good on that. But um, yeah, part of our problem is trying to identify and talk through our blind spots. I don't have any hope that Elon Musk will be interested in engaging in that. But fortunately, quite a few other wealthy men are engaging in that. And That holds some hope for the future, but ultimately the people that benefit from capitalism are not really interested in exploring how to change that. Even when you point out that like everything else, things are not binary about the economy. It's not either capitalism or communism. There's a lot of good um, middle ground options. And I've been fortunate to live in Sweden. And uh, see how it really benefits the community and the public good without destroying the planet and eroding people's autonomy and integrity and pride and food security, etc.
0: What is the uh, consumption per capita in Sweden? Do you know off the top of your head? <laughs> I don't
1: know in the top of my head it it's it's a It's a high-consuming country, so don't get me wrong. It's not the solution for everyone to live the way Swedes do. A big chunk of their consumption, however, is related to the climate they they inhabit. And Mm -hmm. I think we have to understand that as the tropics become so risky for people and hundreds of millions of climate migrants are moving around the world, um, that this is going to Pose a huge challenge for our goals to reduce hyperconsumption. I was working on climate migration before I started um, uh, the Stable Planet Alliance. And, you know, for me, that's a very stark um, metric for how we must choose the kinds of humans that we want to be, either as Communities that are on, you know, likely to receive climate migrants, we can either be welcoming and prepared, and have integration services, such as I experienced as a short-term immigrant to Canada when I was studying there, um, and also in Namibia and South Africa, and so on. You you can either welcome migrants, or you can be reactive and xenophobic and violent, and chaos and anarchy results. So which is it going to be, you know, are we going to choose to be the best kind of humans that
0: we can be or the worst? Yeah. I mean, I think when you put it like that to communities, obviously they would want to choose the best, but the problem is that the best for some people is not the best for others. Right. And typically people mm-hmm. with access to powerful spaces and access to the buttons and the levers. Um, are now making decisions for themselves rather than for the public that they serve. That is so evident in terms of Boris and Trump and Putin and all of these other sort of despots, um, male despots around the world, leading us further and further and further into crisis. Um, and this was something I wanted to kind of get into as well. The the questions that the Stable Planet Alliance are seem to be um, asking and probing are fundamentally ideological, it seems. So how is it that, you, how are you interplay, uh, interpolating science and data and scientific method with um, ideological questions? How are you approaching these ideologies using science? As a scientist,
1: I <clears throat> am really committed to the principle of evidence-based uh, public policy. I've been working in that space for a long time. But fundamentally, we've run out of time, I think, to be, you know, optimally evidence-based. We have a situation now where in the next seven and a half years, we have to make fundamental transformative change to keep a stable planet, a stable climate, and even a stable society or civilization. And therefore, I think that the that, that we're probably gonna end up going the way of what we had done, what we had uh produced 20 years ago. I was a board member of the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment, which had up until then, and I think probably still is the biggest. Uh, global assessment of the status and trends of ecosystems and their ability to support human nature, human Mm. economy, human well-being. And there were four scenarios that we produced, and one was essentially a business as usual and command and control um, scenario. Uh, And there were a couple of others, but the one that stood out to all of the community involved, and there were about sixteen hundred people involved in in that assessment uh, the the one that stood out as being the most compatible with a sustainable future civilization was um, about local experimentation with better ways of living so I do find that experiments like the transition towns movement um, other kinds of relocalization or um Alternative economy approaches to life are important experiments. It doesn't necessarily mean that there will be they will be the ones that um, you know take uh, take root, build traction, and become the basis for future civilizations. I'm sure that about twenty years ago we saw the peak of multilateralism and you know the kind of big short-lived fatal experiment in globalization and uh, so we'll probably see a much more varied world again which as a biodiversity scientist i'm happy about both natural diversity cultural and and sociological diversity i suppose Mm
0: -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. i don't know in answer to your question how do we put evidence-based and ideological things together. There's not much precedent for it, really. We're winging it as we go along, trying to get public policy shifts from the top down and trying to get public perception shifts from the bottom up with grassroots dialogue. And our goals may be difficult to achieve with that two-part approach. But that's how humanity finds its way in times of dizzying change. I don't really know that there's an alternative to that.
0: What sort of uh, top down policy uh, changes are you guys advising on?
1: Well, we're putting together a white paper for the UN FPA, Family Planning Division, um, the Population Division of the UN, but also to all branches of the UN. And therefore, through trickling down the member states of the UN on the SDGs, the sustainable development goals do not pay nearly adequate attention to either of these issues population or consumption. They do talk about the economy and they do talk about consumption, but it's pretty much still in a growthist framework, and population is virtually not mentioned. And there are some reasons for that, but corrective action is needed because this is not 1950 anymore. It's not the age of father knows best where everyone was in this delusion of growth. Now we are, you know, right at the crossroads of civilization. And so for the developing countries, which really do benefit most from the structure and the framework that sustainable development goals provide Um, a reform of them in their 2030 iteration because the goals are reformed every 10 years uh, is going to be really important to ground population and consumption right at the core of them so that future generations are adequately um, valued and catered for and their rights are protected because at the moment they are not. And the UN, might colleague Carter Dillard of the Fair Start Movement, a founding member of Stable Planet Alliance, argues, and he's quite right, that the UN is failing its own um, convention on the rights of the child by failing to ground intergenerational rights in, in the Charter.
0: Yeah, it's, an, it's a really interesting angle. It makes it a more tolerable point of discussion when you think about it in terms of intergenerational rights, for sure. And I think that it's something Greta has done wonderfully throughout her years of campaigning yes. is frame intergenerational rights. that sort of the heart of this debate. Have um, you yet interviewed
1: um, Kate Rayworth's partner, the UK philosopher, Roman Gerard, I, I don't know how to pronounce his uh, surname, Gerard?
0: No, but I have Kate coming on the show in October. Oh, great! So, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's
1: an interesting person too. I would love to be, <laughs> I shouldn't say this online. I'd love to be a fly in the wall in their marriage because they must have the they must have the most incredibly interesting and powerful mm. discussions. But um, she, as someone transforming the economy and um, reminding humanity of the things that should bound an economy, which currently aren't. And he, as a philosopher looking at deep time uh, rights and responsibilities, you know, he's written a very interesting book called The Good Ancestor, for example. Uh, He's a really good person to talk about the rights of those who aren't in the room and the corporations that are increasingly starting to leave a blank chair in the room to represent children to remind people that they're not there and they need to be uh, included. He talks about Sophie Howe, the Welsh um, Commissioner uh, for the Future, for example, and the Wellbeing Economy Alliance and the Wellbeing Economy Governments, of Mm. which there are now six, um, Finland, Iceland, Scotland, New Zealand, uh, Canada and Wales, yes. uh, how they are taking into generational rights very much more to the center for public policy, center of public policy. So, you know, these are the kinds of top-down policies that I think we do need to engage in for the survival of humanity, for the survival of millions of other species on this planet, and for the thriving of humanity. You know, if we are optimistic enough, and sometimes I still am, to feel that humanity can not only survive but will thrive and flourish in the future, then I think we have to understand the tension uh, that is helpful between bottom-up grassroots action and top-down public policy reforms. (sighs)
0: Sure, for sure. (laughs) I suppose... (laughs) I'm. I obviously agree. I suppose immediately what I'm thinking of is my own personal obsession at the moment, which is power, mm. um, power dynamics, power vacuums where power is held, mm. um, how to split power, how to create different kinds of power, and I suppose how to share power. I hope how to share power, how to rip it away, mm. <laughs> um, and I suppose one of the things I fear, um now with everyone I speak to uh, in all walks of life, not just on this podcast, but is that the question of power is so fundamentally difficult mm. to address. How do you wrestle back control and power from people who are despotic and authoritarian, uh, autocratic, even under the guise of, of democracy? Um, how do you wrestle back power? Uh, it seems nigh on impossible. And so I fear that almost everything, every other conversation um, is almost not a distraction, but we are busying ourselves, the good people of the world, we are busying ourselves trying to figure out what to do. And until we figure out that problem of power, it really doesn't matter, actually, does it? Because, I mean, we could, uh, you know, you... You could draft a fantastic document uh, explaining how everybody needs to have one and a half or one child. Or I'm still not sure how those yeah. like point fives and point ones work.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: But you know, we could do that. We could speak to the UN. We could, you know, there's so many things that we, we could, um, you know, stop subs. Say you have to stop subsidizing fossil. You have to do this. You have to. Do that. We know what needs to happen, and the problem is that power is standing in the way. Yeah, absolutely
1: right. And there's no worse thing to try and dismantle in the space of uh you know a decade or two than global capitalism yeah i agree with you it's a fundamentally important point and of course we all hope that more of the hyper affluent which is not always the same as the powerful uh, can yeah. be persuaded to relinquish power to share power to share affluence Um, you will have heard that Warren Buffett, for example, is talking about giving away the virtually the full sum of his wealth to every child in the world. Right. And, you know, that, that's a pretty significant thing. And
0: uh, when he's dead though. Yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 When when he's dead. And by that time, the pie of his wealth will be that much smaller. Mm. Um. But obviously, easy easiest is to get the powerful and the affluent to relinquish their power and wealth. But failing that, um, I, I'm still a little bit too attached to that cartoon where there's a cliff and a platform, almost like a gangplank. And out at the far end of the gangplank, is a man pontificating a politician and uh, there's the black void underneath and at the other end on land there's the 99% all standing on the gangplank. When the 99% agree to walk off in the same direction, then those that aren't aiding and abetting the future of humanity and the planet will be tipped into the void but of course you know the <laughs> the real world is not likely to be that way i'm exasperated by people who will not work together for common purpose at these times because mm. the, despite what michael mann and others have pointed out about the tactics of the fossil fuel industry and other sources of power and affluence in the world to, um, to divide humanity and turn it on itself. We can do better than that. People need to call it out and talk about it and it will stop the problem of divisive bickering and finger pointing, but it can sure
0: minimize it. Mm. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, when we started talking, I was thinking about the conversation I had with Catherine Stewart about um, after Roe v. Wade was overturned, um, Mm -hmm. about the history of the weaponization of abortion as an issue, Mm about how that was what the new right did. They got together in a room, always, it's always a bunch of men in a room,
1: um, Mm -hmm.
0: got together in a room, went down a list of 20 or so issues, landed on abortion, which was like a non-issue at the time. And went. that is something that we can use to generate support for our movement. and it's true. I mean, population is just one of those things that it, it is like intolerable. It is such an uncomfortable conversation. And I have, you know, I have thought it's interesting. Why, why am I having this emotional response to this thing? Why is it that I see a lot of people having emotional responses um, I do. I have seen a lot of critique from, you know, like critical race theorists as well about how dangerous this conversation is, yep. given our colonial history, and they absolutely need a seat at the table to voice those concerns and to ensure yep. that any conversation is really fundamentally staying on track with intention. But still, I mean, um, where was I going with that? No we idea. don't have a choice. <laughs> we don't have a choice, and absolutely,
1: I don't know whether you remember the the band, the indie band, the Indigo Girls. <laughs> they they have it, yeah. They had a wonderful song called Everything in Its Own Time. And mm. it talks straight to what you've just said. And, you know, the old boys in the room um mapping out their strategy uh with the young boys being sent off to die. And yes. you know, with the rest of us being held hostage to their Machiavellian machinations. And and This is why I really feel that investing in women's leadership is a big chunk of the solution, Uh, you know, and it cannot happen to the exclusion of men. But being able to empower women to have greater visibility, greater sense of strategy, greater self-esteem, and particularly at being able to confront difficult dialogues, That's all incredibly important. But, you know, as a scientist also, I got to the point where I realized that science is only a tiny part of the solution. Power and the economy are the massive parts of the solution. Mm. And the best ways to shift those things are through public policy, public dialogues, and film. And that's why (laughs) when I married a filmmaker, I was absolutely over the moon because I've always (laughs) felt that film has the power to do things that certainly facts and figures and evidence cannot do for most people it has the power to shift public opinion significantly and of course that's been weaponized by the far right
0: Mm -hmm. oh god I mean narrative is so key to to any struggle yeah um so we've got to deploy all
1: three of these things is all I'm saying You know, public policy, public dialogues, film, evidence-based, you know, evidence uh, for adaptive management of our civilizational
0: transformation. I suppose it gets down to the question of, do we have a right to to have children? Do we have a right to procreate? Um, Or rather... Perhaps, in a more nuanced sense, is it not that I personally do not think that we have a you know inherent right to procreate I Don't like we have an inherent right to do much, just a hell of a lot of responsibility, um which we should have, but do we I suppose then it comes down to do we just have the right to make choices, and in a world where so much autonomy and choice is being stripped from people, having a child is maybe one of Am I going to say that the that saying maybe big, maybe one of the last things people maybe can do for themselves. One of the last things that they get to choose Um, not having a child is a huge um, choice that modernity has given us as well. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. it's just, it's so primordial.
1: It's, it's a very primal, very intimate decision. I don't ever want to get to the point where we say to people, as some of my colleagues have recently, that people should only have the right to have one child, mm-hmm. not more. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Stable Planet Alliance, just as an aside, is a big, broad church. And we value, as does the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, we value togetherness and forward momentum over perfect agreement. Okay. There are certain lines in the sand that we will not cross on that issue where rights um are traded off in terms of racism or anti-immigration policies eco-native or any of that but uh nonetheless we do disagree a little bit on the on the point of what these times call us to do yeah and ecologically um in any other species, it would be accepted that a saturated population leaves fewer options for the individuals in in that population. Mm-hmm. They have mm-hmm. fewer territories, they mm-hmm. have less access to food and water, all of those things. And mm-hmm. we think that we humans are exempt from that in some mm. way. I do not want to see any kind of coercion either way, but the nature of our Uh, overpopulation, and I use that word very rarely, almost makes it inevitable that uh, autocratic policies or coercion of different kinds will happen. But fundamentally, we also need to respect that our focus, particularly in the affluent world, and especially in the U.S. right now, our focus on rights rather than responsibilities Our sense of entitlement and arrogance and idiocy is uh, coercing future generations. It's coercing um, existing generations of women your age to consider not being able to have children, even if they want to. You know, that's stripped rights away from people, and we've got to call it out as such.
0: Yeah, I completely agree on that point. I think it's, and I think it's very interesting, the distinction between rights and responsibilities. And I think framing everything is like the individual is always part of a community and a collective rather than just an individual existing out with a system, um, really changes the framework of how we address all things. And yet, and yet, um, it right still such an important part of the dialogue because if we're not vigilant. Mm. collectively, all the time, they will be stripped from us, as Ruby Wade
1: proved. Absolutely. And so so rights and freedoms are kind of the same thing. And mm-hmm. and we have to acknowledge that we're heading into times where all of the freedoms that we thought we had in this generation that I've been lucky to grow up in. I was born in 1961 and, and I was the youngest in the family. So my siblings we're all sort of world war 2 post world war 2 babies mm-hmm. um all of that has been for those who were lucky enough to be born in the USA or other relatively wealthy countries those were times of generally stability it didn't mean that there was equity i was lucky to be born pretty white in a family that didn't have masses of money, but at least had love and education. Uh, Not everybody had that right. But this generation has become entitled and spoiled and obnoxious many times because of its sense that those are its God-given rights
0: god given yeah. yeah very important caveat when discussing u s politics I think <laughs> yeah,
1: and it's it's become it's driving people away mm. I mean this was the country of my birth, but for decades, I felt that I was Namibian or South African um and not American because of this, and I've returned to it um because of a swell of, of, you know, optimism around the time that Obama was president, only to arrive just before Trump became president. right? So it's been an immense culture shock to be reminded of how blind spotted and culturally arrogant and uncomfortable and, and complacent and entitled Americans really can be. And we've seen the absolute ugliest of humanity since... Trump came into power he didn't start it but he sure exacerbated it well he
0: said it was okay to be a prick yeah <laughs> <To me. laughs> uh, yep mm, interesting it's just and again this we come back full circle uh, to finish up but I suppose it is like when it is men like that that still have access to powerful spaces I suppose that is the concern when then thrusting the conversation about population because if it were to be weaponized, if it were to be used as a policy in the wrong hands, if it were, ugh, there are just, yes, as we said, so many ways that it could go wrong. And I suppose the what we are now facing as a species, as a collective, as people, is the urgency of the situation where everything is going to go wrong versus the desperation of the situation where certain things could go wrong that would be regression and terrible you know do you choose your um to go backwards into the past where racism and sexism were so worse than they are today and they are still despicable or do you choose go, to go forward into the future where you know the planet goes on fire <laughs> it's
1: exasperating it's been incredibly exasperating to have come from a career spent initially for more than three decades in two post-apartheid countries mm. back to the U.S. and think, oh, shit, here we go again. Yeah. Excuse my French. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and it's horrifically familiar. Mm. But um, I, I do think that we've got almost an impossible set of tasks. So this really is an all-hands-on-deck moment for those people who are determined to find a better civilization in the future. And that's a minority of people. And yeah. we've got to create it and we've got to draw everyone along with us and still be able to fend off against the rich, powerful, and troll empowering uh, men and others in the world that um don't see or don't care that yeah. none of them None of any of us will be alive, you know, to mm. to be able to enjoy a better world.
0: I suppose one of the small, uh, what was you going to say? I suppose one of the benefits of any um, population policy being implemented is it predicated on there not being a capitalist economy. There is no way that uh, an anti-natalist policy would be implemented in a capitalist economy. So by the very nature of its existence, one would hope or assume that that had meant a move to the left and to more collective thinking um, and socialist infrastructures and all this kind of thing. I'm a believer
1: in social democracies, but my filmmaker husband, who is a consummate philosopher, always says to me, you can't fix the race car while it's driving and yet we cannot pull the whole global economy into the pit stop to tinker with it we've got mm. to figure out how to get there from here mm. while it's moving and that means i realize belatedly to my dismay <laughs> it realize it 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 means that unless we wish to have um anarchy and chaos for some decades across much of the world then we are going to have to start from capitalism and reform it and figure out how to make it into something more approaching, uh, a kind of eco-social democracy to make that work. And different countries will do it in different ways, and that's okay. We probably have to let go of real elephants and and, um, albatrosses in the room like the World Trade Organization to make mm. it happen. Mm.
0: Which takes us back to power. <laughs> right. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And endlessly around. endlessly circular. Phoebe. Um, all the book? I uh, am know. I gonna am I gonna write a book? Yeah, about this. Uh, what a non-fiction about power? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Move over uh Michel Foucault. Um <laughs> Um, I am thinking about doing um, a long-form investigation into carbon, where the focus on carbon came from. I find it odd and suspicious um, that one greenhouse gas was picked and all of the marketing was done around that. Uh, I'm making a film
1: with my husband and a
0: team, uh, the moment on
1: climate restoration, and that's very much... uh, Film that's taking place within the capitalist economy as we currently know it but i'm trying to imagine it moving beyond that and Mm. that's a whole nother topic that we won't get into but (laughs) i i hear you on
0: this Mm. yeah there's a lot of work to be done i really am uh, obsessed with the the notion of power right now and what to do about it
1: I think we all need to be really aware of it and not naive about it and be Mm. prepared for, you know, when it keeps trying to come for us. But it is already, even if it's just in Twitter trolls and, um, (laughs) you know, uh, Cambridge Analytica and other kinds
0: of information. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Phoebe, thank you so much for your time. It was such a pleasure speaking with you. It's my.
1: Rachel, thank you.
0: Thank you. My final question, as you know, uh, is who would you like to platform?
1: I would suggest that guy, Roman Journalistic, Kate Rayworth's partner. Mm. Um, And I interact only on Twitter with him. I don't know him personally. So maybe I would suggest him, but I can't introduce him formally. Maybe Kate can. (laughs)
0: Okay. Wicked. Thank you so much, Phoebe. It was such a pleasure.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much, Rachel. Cheers for now.
0: Cheers. If you want to learn more about the Stable Planet Alliance and their work, I've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, support the project with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. As always, a huge thank you to the Planet Critical community who make all of this work possible. Thank you all for listening. See you next week.